0: Turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, to Matthew 21. We're continuing our way through the text. Jesus has made His triumphant entry. He has... Jesus has made His triumphant entry. He has cleansed the temple. And although Matthew's text doesn't make this explicitly clear, Mark's Gospel does. What happens next with the fig tree is tied to the fruitlessness that Jesus observed in the nation of Israel as epitomied by what He saw in the temple. So before we uh, start this morning, I'd like for us just to take a moment and pray and ask God to open our hearts and minds uh, that His Spirit would illuminate the text before us. So if you would, just bow with me for a moment in prayer. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word and its clarity to us. We thank You, Lord, for the ways that You have taught us. And the ways in which you are continuing to teach us. God, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what it is that you're trying to say to us this morning through the passage before us. And we pray, God, that your spirit would show us the need to be fruitful as we walk with you. We love you, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Is this is this on? Can you hear me okay? Okay. Not getting the sound out. Can you? Okay. Well. <laughs> when I was in seminary a number of years ago, uh, my missiology professor told me a story about an IMB missionary serving in Colombia. This IMB missionary was serving in Columbia in the fifties, and of course at that time Colombia was not nearly as church, not nearly as evangelized as it is today. And he was working trying to plant churches. And he met a man there who was very, very influential, an influential businessman. And he thought to himself, if somehow I could win this man to faith in the Lord, because of his influence, because of his standing in the business community, surely if I could win this key individual to faith in Christ, he would be a tremendous power for the gospel. Because of his influence, he'd be able to uh, persuade others to come to know the Lord as well. And so he took this man out for a cup of coffee. They sat down in a cafe. This is in Cologne. And right near Cologne there is a mountain, Pico Cristobal. And uh, it's a fairly tall mountain. You, can, you can't miss it if you're in Cologne in, in uh, Colombia. And he was sitting down talking to this man and trying to persuade this man to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the businessman said to him, I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. It says in your book that if you have Just a little bit of faith, if you believe, then you can ask for mountains to be moved. It says that in the Bible, doesn't it? Referencing this text here, it's also mentioned for us in Matthew 17. The missionary said, yes, it does actually say that. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll become a a Christian when you tell Pico Cristo to throw itself in the Atlantic Ocean. Missionary said, You're on. And he began to pray. And he began to rally all of his fellow believers together, those few of them that were Christians there, and they began to pray and they began to fast day and night. And they said, Lord, in some way, in some some remote way, that we don't know how or, or exactly you know how you will achieve this, we are asking you that you would move Pico Cristo, that you would move it, that this influential businessman would come to faith. In the Lord, And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And if you go to Colombia today, this happened back in the 50s, you will find, if you go to Colombia, that Pico Cristo hasn't moved an inch. I mean, they've done aerial photography, they've looked at it from satellite perspectives, and, you know, maybe a few pebbles have rolled downhill as a result of the wind, and, and uh, they've noticed some erosion and some natural things happening. But the mountain hasn't moved an inch. Now, the reason that this poor, misguided missionary made that commitment to that businessman was because of a fundamental misunderstanding of exactly what it is that Jesus is saying in passages like this. There are two approaches when it comes to looking at a statement such as what Jesus makes here. You take it very, very literally and you say, yes, absolutely, we as Christians ought to be telling all manner of different features, all manner of different geological formations just to be rearranging themselves at our command. The other extreme is that you look at a text like this and you say, you know what? You just explain it away. This is just some weird comment that Jesus makes as He's headed towards the cross and it really doesn't have any bearing or any significance to us. It's It's just a figure of speech. It's just a statement. They either overemphasize the moving of the mountain Or they downplay it so much that it has no significance whatsoever. Both extremes are wrong. So the question before us today is, what exactly is it Jesus is saying to us in this particular passage? It starts off. This is this is Tuesday. He went in on Monday. He cleansed the temple. Now remember, the temple is a house of prayer. That's what it's supposed to be. We looked at that last week. He goes in. He cleanses the temple. It's not clear to us here from Matthew, but Mark makes it explicitly clear on his way in on Monday morning to cleanse the temple, he curses the fig tree. He goes on in, he cleanses the temple, they go back home, they go back out to Bethany, they stay the night. They're coming back in on Tuesday morning and they notice that the fig tree that Jesus cursed is totally withered away. They're going back to the temple. Now Matthew takes that account and he condenses it right here very simply for us. And the question is often asked, why does Matthew condense this into this brief, tight passage where Mark clearly bookends the cleansing of the temple with the two different episodes here? And the reason is simple. Mark is writing to a Gentile audience and he is recording the chronology of the events, the sequence of events as they happened in order during Passion Week. A Gentile audience would not readily pick up on this one unmissable, unmistakable symbol that is recorded for us here. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and Jewish readers would have gotten the symbolism immediately. The fig tree in the Old Testament is routinely used as a symbol for Israel. When Jesus approaches a fig tree, A Jewish audience would have understood he's talking about the nation of Israel. Mark draws it out to help you to see this clearly pertains to what's going on in the temple. Matthew doesn't have to draw it out for us. He condenses it into one expression. Now look with me. It says here, chapter 21, verse 18, in the morning, they're going back in. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, coming back into Jerusalem, he became hungry and Seeing a fig tree by the roadside. So this isn't Jesus intruding into somebody's personal orchard, going to somebody's personal vineyard and looking to steal fruit. This is a tree alongside the road. He goes to it, and look at what it says in verse 9. Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it, and he found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered away at once. Is this Jesus just having a momentary sort of freak out because he's hungry and he looks for some fruit and he can't find it, so he says, you know what, you're cursed. Is, that, is this Jesus just being impetuous, impulsive, or is there a deeper meaning to all of it? First off, it's not wrong for Jesus to expect to find some fruit here. It's not wrong for him to expect to find it reason for that is because of what we know to be true about fig trees. Fig trees produce fruit concurrently with their foliage. This is something that you need to understand. If you see leaves on a fig tree, you should be capable of finding fruit. That's not how it happens with a lot of other fruit trees. For example, apple trees or pear trees or peach trees, any other type of fruit tree that you and I might plant. When we plant it and it grows up, when it starts to produce fruit in the spring, the first thing it's going to do is it's going to put out leaves, and then it's going to put out flowers, and then as those flowers are pollinated, eventually, in due time, it'll put out fruit. That's not the case with fig trees, and it's particularly not the case with fig trees here in Palestine in Israel in first century. There are a couple of different varieties. R.K. Harrison, commenting in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, he explains that despite the different varieties of fig trees that you might find In first century Israel, they're all going to produce a type of fruit, which the Arabs refer to, the Arabic word for it is tash. It's not the fully mature fruit that you will find later on in the season. But the fruit begins to develop at the same time as the leaf. If you see a fig tree in full leaf, all of its leaves are out, and its foliage is out there you ought to be able to go to it and find, even if it's early in the season, you ought to be able to find fruit on the tree. may not be the fully mature, developed fruit that you'll find later in the season, but you should find something there. When Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, no doubt as they're coming down the Mount of Olives, They've got the Kidron Valley before them. They're looking ahead. They've got the Temple Mount right in front of them. They're coming from Bethany, so they're headed from from east-west into the city there, getting ready to go up to the Temple Mount. Looking at Israel, Jesus is enacting a parable. This is a clear metaphor for what He thinks about the fruitlessness of Israel. The disciples are with Him he approaches a fig tree, which by all rights ought to have some fruit on it. As he approaches the fig tree, as he looks for fruit, he finds none. And here's the rub. Any botanist, any horticulturist will tell you, with these fig trees in this particular location, if you approach it early in the season, if leaves have already come out, if it's already in full foliage, and there's no fruit on it, They will not produce fruit. They will be barren the whole season. When Jesus approaches the fig tree, this is not Him just having a freak out because He's hungry and He wants some food. He sees a plant that should be producing fruit and there's every indication that not only is it not currently producing fruit, but it will never produce fruit. That's the essence of the cursing that He pronounces on the fig tree. As we step way back out of the text and we consider the context, He has just gone into the temple. He has just cleansed the temple. nation of Israel, they are chosen by God to do one thing. To worship Him, to love Him, and specifically, to be capable of recognizing the Messiah when He comes. Jesus has entered into the temple and they totally don't get it. Paul makes this statement in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He talks about the fact that he wishes he himself could be cut off if it would mean that Israel could be saved. He makes this statement. They are Israelites and to them, the Israelites, to the Jews, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and it is from their race, according to the flesh, that is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, and amen. Paul's statement is, these guys were given the job of the law, the worship. They they knew everything that God had revealed to them. They had been given the Scriptures. And it is from their race, from the Jewish race, that the Messiah was appointed to come according to the promise made to Abraham. They had the patriarchs. They had every advantage. They had every blessing. And yet when Jesus shows up, the fruit that He ought to be able to expect from them is that they would recognize Him. That they would see Him. And they would be able to say, this is Yahweh. This is the Messiah. This is God among us in the flesh. That's the fruit that Jesus is looking for when He enters the temple, the house of prayer, and He doesn't find any fruit there. So it's time for a spiritual lesson for the disciples. In the fullness of time, Jesus has come. The fruit which He ought to be able to expect at this time... Non-existent. There is no fruitfulness. Is it wrong to expect fruitfulness from a tree planted and cultivated for the very specific purpose of producing fruit? No, it is not wrong. And in fact, if a plant that has been created by God, planted, cultivated, and intended to produce fruit does not produce fruit, then it is accountable to God for its lack of fruitfulness. Now that's the context. That's what we're talking about. Israel was chosen. They were honored. But they did not produce the fruit that God was looking for. Sometimes when you observe people who have been appointed to positions of high office, they stand up to give an acceptance speech you know we have a presidential american presidential election happening this year and undoubtedly whoever is elected next january will stand up and give an inauguration speech and they'll say something to the effect of it's an honor to be elected president and oftentimes you'll hear something else as well not only is it an honor but i am humbled you know to have this this honor conferred upon me have you ever wondered whenever you hear people give acceptance speeches when they've been appointed to high office, they'll say, I'm honored and I'm humbled. What does that mean? Have you ever stopped to, how, how do you have both of those at the same time? I mean, if we stop and we say, you're honored, well, you're, you're saying that you've been sort of appointed to stand a little bit ahead or a little bit taller than all your peers. You've, you've been raised up, so to speak, uh, somebody that we can look upon. You're representative of the, the community. You're a leader. You know, you're honored, okay? Well, we get that. But wouldn't that lead to pride? Look at me. I'm honored. I'm exalted above all all of uh, my peers to lead them, to serve as president over them. Have you ever stopped to wonder how those individuals could then turn around at the same time and say, I'm humbled? Humility would be the exact opposite. If you're humbled, well, you're not so sure of yourself. You're wanting to lean on other wisdom, other counselors. You're going to want to seek input from other people. How is it possible for you to be both honored and humbled? I used to always wonder at that expression. I never fully understood. And, you know, people say it all the time. It's become cliched. It's become hackneyed. I'm not even sure any of us really remember or understand what it actually meant when it was first uttered. I think that what it means, though, if you're using it properly, it is an honor to be chosen. God chose Israel. God has chosen us. We are God's chosen people. Does that lead to, in us, pride, or arrogance, or cockiness? For some of us, it can. And undoubtedly, it did for the Jews. What we ought rather to feel the emotion that we ought to exhibit having been chosen by God, not arrogant. It is an honor to be chosen. But having been chosen, we ought to seek to fulfill the obligations that God's choice confers upon us, knowing how easy it is to miss the mark. We ought to want to do a good job. And as such, rather than being cocky, rather than being proud or arrogant, God's choice ought to lead us to humility. Where we say, it is an honor to be chosen. But now I want to make sure that being chosen, I do a really good job. The reason I share all this with you, a few weeks ago, March sometime, March 13th, this church uh, voted call me as, as the pastor, as the preaching, one of the preaching pastors. Here. And my wife asked me afterwards, how do you feel about that? And I wanted to tell her that I felt honored, because I did. I felt like it was an incredible honor. But I thought, oh, I can't say that because that will sound proud or, or braggadocious, like I'm, I'm bragging. But as I thought about it, I also thought to myself, I want to do a good job. For a people to choose someone doesn't necessarily mean that that person is perfect or is going to be flawless. But when you place your faith in someone, when someone places their faith in you, you want to reward that faith. You want to reward that choice. So you want to be humble. You want to do a good job. That's why I told my wife. I said, well, I'm honored and I'm I'm humble." She said, people say that all the time. What do you mean by that? I said, now I understand. (laughs) Israel was honored to be chosen. But rather than responding to God's choice with humility, they said, good for us. We've been chosen. They patted themselves on the back. They did not lean closely into what the Scriptures had to say about the Messiah. They did not have a humble heart before the Word of God knowing that they had to give an account for recognizing Messiah when He comes. And Jesus comes. It's clear. He's the Messiah. He comes into the temple, which is to be a house of prayer devoted to His worship. And He finds them engaging in business. Acting like a bunch of charlatans. Scamming people. And they get mad at Him. Because the little children are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus, walking with the disciples, takes all of that and he illustrates it by saying, you see this fig tree? It should be producing fruit, but it's not. And it stands accountable before God for its lack of fruitfulness, and it is now judged and cursed. What a powerful teaching illustration. Of course, the disciples... Right over their heads. They look at the fruit tree. It's cursed. It's withered away. They say, "Wait, cool, man. The, the tree is cursed. Awesome. I mean, Jesus is the ultimate teacher, has pulled together a great object illustration. He presents it to the disciples in the context. It's very clear what he's getting at. And they're like, hey, man, the tree is dead. That's awesome. How'd that happen? This, from the guy that's walked on water, that's fed 5,000 people, that's raised Lazarus from the dead cursed a fig tree, small potatoes in the eyes of Jesus. I'm telling you, this is not even one of his best miracles. And they're like, that's cool. Now, Jesus, if I am teaching somebody and I pull together what I think is just a great object illustration, and they're just like, wow, that's a really neat little, and they totally miss the point of what I'm saying, I'm going to get frustrated and say, no, no, stop. You're not listening. Pay attention. I'm going to like make them see what it is I'm trying to get them to see. I'll probably do it with a bit of frustration, a lack of patience, but that's not Jesus. It shows them that there's a responsibility being chosen by God, that they have to produce fruit. They miss it. Whoa, cool, you cursed a fig tree. Okay, okay, stay with me here now. Look at the next part. Verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled and said, how did the fig tree wither once?" And Jesus doesn't rebuke them and say, man, you guys are dense. That's not what he says. He says, truly I say to you, if you have faith, now that does not mean that you just believe really strongly. That means that if you continue to depend upon God, if you continue to place your confidence and your hope in God, makes the statement, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, that is, you do not question God, or somehow be suspicious that God is incapable of delivering on what He has promised, if you have faith, you have confidence, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. The disciples are concerned with what they see right in front of them. Whereas Jesus is trying to make a spiritual point. So His response to them Now, in the context of what's being said here, Jesus is talking about a spiritual truth, not the actual capacity to curse fig trees and to tell mountains to move. They're concerned with what they can see with their eyes, and staying there in that teaching moment, He draws them back to what Israel's primary problem was. You have to stay humble. You have to stay believing and having faith and having confidence Not in yourself, but in God. Now, the way that Jesus shows this, you would have to understand Jewish metaphors for this to make sense to you. A number of years ago, Billy Graham went to South Korea to preach a crusade. He went there. You know, it's one of those deals. It's in a stadium. There's tens of thousands of people. And he's standing there, and he's getting ready to preach, and there's a translator that comes up next to him, and and, uh, he says to the translator, First thing I want you to say to the group that's gathered here today, I want them to know how tickled to death I am to meet them today. The translator looked at him and said, "Uh, I don't think you really. He's like, No, no, just tell them, just tell them. Tell them how tickled to death I am to meet them today. So, translator, you translated it. There was a long pause, and it was clear that the group of thousands of people that are there are looking at each other like, What? And then they burst out laughing. And Billy Graham says to his translator, what did you say to them? He says, there's no exact translation for tickled to death. So what I said was the closest thing I could find in the Korean language. I itch and I scratch and I die to meet you today. So that was the crowd's response too. the idioms and the expressions that we use here in North American culture, you know, Canadian culture, the idioms and the expressions, the figures of speech that you and I use, they don't necessarily translate over to other cultures. So often we approach this teaching of Jesus. He's talking to the disciples. The point is spiritual fruitfulness. And he makes the statement, if you have faith, if you have confidence, if you stay humble and you keep hoping in God, you'll be able to not only see what happened in this picture, you'll be able to say mountains to be uprooted. And you and I, reading it very literally as North Americans would, we say this is what Jesus is saying. Barrier is a small town. They don't have a lot of economy in Barrier. So what we need to do is pray and fast and tell Mount Rushmore from South Dakota to uproot itself and go to some place like Barrier so that people in Barrier can make a buck on tourism. That's how you and I would read this passage. We are too quick to jump to it as extremely literal. Would the disciples have understood it that way? No, they would not have. Because in the Old Testament, this is a clear hyperbole. This is a metaphor for that which is impossible. In Isaiah, don't flip there, just listen. In Isaiah, God makes a statement. He's talking about, again, the difficulty of Israel, their lack of faithfulness to him as the Lord. It makes the statement, these days are like the days of Noah to me. Which is to say, I'm extremely unhappy with what I see in Israel. These days are like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more cover the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. I made a promise, I'm not going to utterly destroy you, and I'm going to stick to that. Now here's the hyperbole. For as the mountains might depart, and as the hills might be removed, my steadfast love shall never depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall never be removed. God's statement is, have you ever seen something as impossible as mountains being moved? Of course not. You've never seen that. That actually could happen. But my love for you, will never be taken away. God is speaking very clearly in an exaggeration for the point of emphasizing His love. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah has the power for tearing down and for building up. Did you ever notice Jeremiah performing a miracle in which he tore down a literal mountain and then caused another valley or or a, a, a ravine or a riverbed to be built up? Have you ever actually seen that? No, you haven't. Specifically, I want to reference another scripture verse for you today. This is from Isaiah 40. Listen to this. In Isaiah 40, the prophet Isaiah is talking about the coming Messiah. It says, Before Messiah comes, I'm going to send a messenger ahead of you. There there will come a voice crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every Every valley be lifted up, and every mountain. Be made low. Make a level road for God. Tear the mountains down, lift the valleys up. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And then the Messiah will come. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness. John, the Gospel of John tells us that they sent people to him, say, "Hey, are you the Messiah?" He says, "No, I'm not the Messiah." Well, who are you? John's statement in the Gospel of John, as well as in Matthew, is to say that I am one crying out in the wilderness. He makes the statement, "I am one crying out in the wilderness. I am the one who has been spoken of by the prophet Isaiah: Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight." The Scriptures are emphatically clear. This prophecy that the mountains are going to be made low and the valleys are going to be filled in was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Which means we have to ask the question, Mr. John the Baptist, which mountains did you tear down and which valleys did you lift up? John the Baptist, you can consult the Scriptures and you can consult all of the church historians. You can look in the Bible and you can consult not only the Christian historians, Tertullian, uh, Tertullian, um, uh, Irenaeus, Justice. You can also look at the secular historians, Acidus, Josephus, guys that weren't believers. You look at all of the historical writings and they'll all tell you there's no evidence anywhere that John the Baptist literally tore down any mountains or literally filled up any valleys. And yet the scriptures are saying that he fulfilled the word of the, of the Lord when he came preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what's the scripture talking about? In context, Jesus is talking about the difficulties of the human heart missing the Messiah. The disciples are consumed. Wait, cool, man, you cursed a fig tree. So Jesus shifts to a metaphor that they would have commonly understood. And he says to them, I tell you, if you have faith, if you trust and place your confidence in God, and later on he's going to talk about the fact that they need to be doing things with prayer, if with prayer and faith and confidence in God... You'll be able to do amazing, magnificent things. Not literally uprooting Mount Rushmore and placing it in barrier. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that Jesus is speaking literally to these twelve guys. Okay? Now one of them is a traitor. Judas will take him off. So we've got eleven to work with. Is there anywhere in the scriptures? after Jesus makes this explicit promise to the eleven apostles, is there anywhere in the book of Acts, do we understand anywhere all the way to the end of Revelation, is there anywhere where these guys in their lifetime literally tore down mountains and lifted up them? You won't find it. Which means that if Jesus is being literal, He's making a promise to these eleven that doesn't get fulfilled. So, we need to step back for a second and ask ourselves, isn't it probable, isn't it likely, given the fact that it's a popular metaphor in Jewish literature, the moving of mountains, isn't it likely that there's even prophecies that predict the tearing down of mountains and the lifting up of valleys prior to the coming of the Messiah, and that John the Baptist is explicitly stated as having fulfilled that prophecy? Isn't it possible that God is talking about something much, much, much more difficult than moving a literal mountain, isn't it possible that what Jesus is referring to is the obstacles and the barriers that keep people from being reconciled to the Lord? I think that it is. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. When He says to the disciples, if you believe and if you have faith, you will not only be able to do what you've seen here with this Cursed fig tree, but you will be able to say to this mountain, be uprooted. Did you notice the near demonstrative pronoun this mountain? Look back at the text with me one more time. Time is short, I'll try to hustle. Verse 21 Truly I say to you, if you have faith and you do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to notice this, this mountain. Where are they going? They're going to the temple. They have come down off of the Mount of Olives. They are in the Kidron Valley. They are headed they are headed west. They are approaching the Temple Mount. They are about to go up the Temple Mount into the temple. Jesus curses a fig tree. They are like, way cool, man. He's in the moment teaching them about spiritual truths. And he says, I want to tell you, boy, something. What you've seen here, you can see happen. Even if you say to this mountain, gesturing, maybe, at the Temple Mount upon which the temple sits. Be uprooted. Be thrown away. That makes more sense given the context of what he's trying to tell them about fruitfulness in the Christian life. First Baptist Church, the point of the text here is number one, as God's chosen people, we are called to be fruitful. That calling to be fruitful, that choice of God, choosing us. It can lead to arrogance and self-confidence. Or the proper response is that we are to be a people of prayer, depending not in our own power and in our own strength, or even, as is commonly taught today, believing in the, own, the strength of our own faith. No. What we are to be doing is believing and hoping in the power of God to achieve the impossible. Not moving literal mountains, something far more difficult. Moving the imperturbable, immovable mountains of stubbornness, of pride, that often reside in our own hearts. Look at what Jesus says here, the exact command. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and you do not doubt, you will do has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Notice at the very end, the issue here is not telling the mountain to move and watching it move. The issue here is drawing nearer to the Father in prayer. Humble dependence upon God. So I want to ask a question. We know we're supposed to be fruitful, right? What kind of fruit do we have in our lives? As somebody who is called to walk with the Lord, as somebody who's called to be in prayer before the Lord, as somebody who's called to be trusting God to move mountains, are we depending upon God to see fruit in our lives? What types of fruit are you known for? Baptist churches are known for arguing about lots of things. In my time, I've observed a lot of silly arguments. I've been a part of a lot of silly arguments. And probably the most cliched, sort of overused example, is you say, you put two Baptists in a room, you tell them to come to one solid opinion on something, and those two Baptists will emerge with three separate opinions. I've heard people say that, you know, Baptists will argue over the color of the carpet, Baptists will argue over the painting on the walls, I mean, anything that could be argued about, Baptists will argue about it. So the question I want to pose is, is the fruit that we're known for strife? Is the fruit that we're known for arguing? Is the fruit that we're known for to be divisive? And is that the fruit that Christ is looking for in this passage? I want you to stay right there. I want to read you something from Romans. Paul makes a statement in Romans chapter 1. Talking to the church in Rome, he makes a statement, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's Romans 1, 14 and 15. Now Paul makes a statement, I am under obligation. I have something I have to do. The term is an accounting term. He could say, I'm under debt. I owe a debt. Looking at it, we could ask the question, what are you saying, Paul? Are you saying that somehow you have to work for this? That this is something you have to do in order to earn right standing with God? I mean, what are you really doing here? What do you mean by that expression? His statement is clear. He's not under obligation to God. He's not paying back a debt to God. He's under obligation to preach the Gospel to everyone. Why is he under obligation? Because he's been chosen and he's been called by God and he's been given a task. And he knows that as someone who is called by God, he has to produce fruit. You'll notice also, it doesn't say he's responsible for them coming to salvation. He's not responsible for them coming to faith. He's responsible, though, for preaching the gospel. Why? Because a fig tree produces figs. And God's people proclaim the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And that's the point of why Jesus makes this statement about the temple. The spiritual fruit he's looking for, it doesn't exist. It's going to happen though, if we walk with God. I, uh, for the last eight years, I've been working to win young families to faith in Christ. Young families with young kids, trying to tell them the gospel, trying to lead them to a point where they're willing by the power of God's Spirit to place their faith in Christ to get saved, to get baptized, and then discipling them. been trying to do that for eight years now. And I want you to understand something. It's impossible. It's impossible. You try to take a group, not even a large group, a small group of like five people, five families, and you try to walk with them and bring them to the point of spiritual maturity. It's impossible. You can't do it in your own strength. Somebody asked me one time when I was a little discouraged about what I was observing in my ministry. The question was put to me, would you rather go work at Highland Valley Copper Mine? Have you ever been to Highland Valley Copper Mine? Anybody here? Some of you work there and you've been there? It's a mountain that's been moved. Men can move mountains. When Jesus says, you know, you can move mountains, he's, we can. And the weird thing is, if you actually research that expression, you'll find it in the book of Job as well. Job makes the statement men move mountains, they turn them up by their roots that they can get at the gold underneath. Moving a mountain is actually doable, it's possible. I could go work at Highland Valley Copper Mine. I could be on a four-day on, four-day off shift. I could work days. I could work nights. I could drive one of those ginormous, earth-moving dump trucks. It's like 50 tons or whatever, 100 tons. And I could move a mountain, quite literally. And it would actually move. They've done it. Which is easier? To move a mountain... To go to work every day, day in and day out, jump in a dump truck and move a mountain. Or to take a group of five, ten people and to lead them to a place of spiritual maturity. There's no question. Moving a mountain is easier. It's way easier. But there is way greater blessedness leading people to a place of spiritual maturity. And there's greater joy as well. We have coming up here very soon. In the month of July, a vacation Bible school. Jill and Lynn are doing a great job organizing and getting ready for that. We're going to be doing there what I've been doing for the last eight years, what many of you have done over the last however many years you've been walking with the Lord. We're going to be taking a bunch of kids and their moms and dads And we're going to be proclaiming the gospel to them and we're going to be trying to see the impossible happen. We're going to be trying to take people who don't know the Lord, have no desire to be with the Lord, who are spiritually dead. We're going to try and take dead people and by God's power and by the Spirit of God bring them back to life through the proclamation of the gospel. That's impossible. That's impossible unless you do it together with the Lord. Jill and Lynn have put together a wonderful thing. Prayer guide. Brought it with me to the pulpit this morning. I I knew this text was coming and last week when Jill made the announcement about the prayer guide, I thought, that's exactly right. We can't lead people to faith. Dead people don't come to life unless God brings them to life. Jesus makes a statement, whatever you ask in prayer, you receive if you have faith, if you're placing your confidence in God. As you leave here today, I want you to understand we have an opportunity for incredible fruitfulness here in this location, in this building, in the heart of Kamloops because this city is lost. We've got amazing people that are working to bring kids, to bring families, to bring these people here that we would have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And for all of that, none of it will be fruitful unless we pray. Grab one of these on your way out the door today, church. We have to be fruitful. And the fruitfulness that God is looking for is humble dependence upon Him. i tell you right now, there's a couple of things that we need to be praying for. On the 13th of April, for hearts of service for those who are being asked to serve. Wow. What an incredible prayer that we need to be praying to the Lord. For the thankfulness on the 16th the thankfulness of God's Word, which is the power of salvation. We've got things to be praying for. We've got things to be working for. And we've got things that we need to be depending upon God to see happen. It is way, way easier to move a mountain than to see a family come to faith in the Lord. This missionary, this IMB missionary I told you about, in Cologne, Colombia over many, many years, they prayed and they fasted and they asked God to move Pico Cristo and it never moved and it hasn't moved even to this day. The gentleman, the businessman, who said, if you can move Pico Cristo, I will come and I will place my faith in the Lord. The guy that they wanted to see to come to know the Lord because he could be such a powerful influence over all of Colombia and hopefully bring a lot of people to faith in the Lord. Well, he never got saved. the best of our knowledge, he never trusted in the Lord. And many, many decades have passed That missionary has since come off the field, and Pico Cristo never has moved. But do you know what has happened? If you are familiar with the culture of Colombia, you'll understand that from the 1950s onward, an incredible revival has swept that country. As people began praying, God, move Pico Cristobal, that this businessman would get saved, that people would see that and come to faith in you, God said, you know what? I don't need to move mountains. I don't need to move Fico Cristobal in order to move the mountains of the human heart. Heart God is so good. He can move mountains without moving mountains. Isn't that great? Church, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love You. We thank You so much, God, for Your Word to us this morning. Lord, as we come together now to partake of communion, I pray, God, that You would just convict us in our hearts of our need to depend upon You, our need to trust in You. God, I pray that You would begin to work in our hearts, Lord, a humility which seeks You for everything. Lord, I pray, God, that as we come to this table to declare our unity with You, that we would be humble before You, that we would truly depend upon You. Lord, we pray that You would do these things in our hearts by Your Word. We ask these things in Christ's name.